Now mahi fakairo, carving, the sounds, the myriad of tools and their uses to fashion meeting houses, waka, po or other designs. It's what the students learn and absorb at the New Zealand Māori Arts and Crafts Institute in Rotorua. The work of NZ Mackie is evident at the National Kapahaka Festival Te Matatini. The stage is a carved, collapsible maho or stage front and is 30 metres in length and 13 metres in height. The construction of the maho involved Clive Fugel, who was recently honoured at Te Puya for 50 years service. He started out as a student, and over the years he has built up an impressive knowledge base, learning from his peers, his mentors and students. In this series, Te Tangata Pūkinga, Clive Fugel talks about his childhood, his book Te Toki Mete Fao, his love of reading and writing notes wherever he goes. For Clive, taking up the chisel began at a young age. Probably the age of about nine, I suppose, I started carving in the woodshed at home. And, um, and then I started from there... Um, I was given a set of tools by my my parents about 1962 and then that's when the carving part started. But I was always good at art at school, um, good at drawing, painting and so on. Uh, art prizes, I'd always get the art prizes, but <laughs> anything else I was dumb as. <laughs> I wasn't very bright. <laughs> yeah, mathematics, I wasn't very good at that or anything else. But, but Can you uh, remember when you first saw something carved? Probably my earliest recollections would be primary school. We used to have back in those social studies and that sort of thing, and they used to show these um, uh, slides of Māori artefacts and different things, and I think that's probably the inkling of where it was going to go. Um, but in the back of my mind, you know, I'd see these things and the shape and the form of... Uh, patus and um, like wakahuya and uh, the tokipo tangata and these things and I'd see these things and I'd think oh something fascinated me about them and about the age of probably 10 I suppose we went up north on a, a camping trip and uh, I remember we uh, camped at Dargaville and um, on Christmas holidays and it rained like anything, pelted down. And father said, well, he's reading the paper, and he said, oh, there's a private museum in here. Let's go and see this private museum and see what's there. And so we went to have a look, and um, you knew you were getting, there was something there because this guy had, um, there was a small waka parked on the lawn, and a waka kiriru, you know, the pigeon troughs and that. It was one of those and bits and pieces, and... He said, oh, this must be the place. So in we went. And this elderly gentleman, um, uh, for many years I didn't know his name, but um, he had um, his house, an old house, but he, he'd taken one, uh, made one bedroom, took the wall out, made it bigger, and he had a beautiful museum in there. He had, it uh, wasn't big, but he had one of everything. He had all the cloaks, he had um, uh, uh, tuki, stone adz, a big collection of curry gum, uh, all sorts in there. And he had these cases in the middle of the floor. And there was um, one had 
mere, two meres in there, uh, heitiki, and he had this patu onewa, so, um, patu made out of stone, black stone, and um, uh, he brought them out of the cabinet let me hold them, and I held this patu, and that thing just blew me away at that time. I just The shape, the form, and the feel of this weapon, and how it was made, and uh, fascinated me. It's fascinated me for years, that. Um, and he was did carving, this old man did carving, and he took me out the back, and he said, oh, okay, boy, um, uh, he got a bit of wood, put it in the vise, and drew out the patterns, and he had all the carving tools there, and I remember the um, he had all had a, uh, the old filing cabinets, wooden filing cabinets, had them all the way up to the ceiling, and he'd pull the drawers out, and they were full of the best, the finest English carving chisels. He brought the tools out, and he was, did the carving on the wood, show the different patterns, named them all, and um, I've still got that piece of wood. I kept it all these years. That was part of the inspiration. Later on, um, when I was at high school, because I was still carving at that time at home, didn't know what I was doing, of course, because you're copying out of books and bits and pieces. And at high school, um, I used to look at the stage area and um, was all beautifully carved and uh, was done by John Taiapa and his assistant that he used to work with, um, Jim Ruru. And... Um, I'd sit and look at this carving and say, oh, I love that. That's what I want to do. Perhaps it wasn't so much being at the right place at the right time, but more about Clive being around the right people. My neighbour was a carver, and we shifted into this new home in Hillcrest Avenue. And um, our neighbour, Dave Winterburn, lived just over the fence, and he was a carver, and he worked. He was Ngāti Raukawa, and he worked out at the Buried Village carving there. And he was talking to my father one day, and he said, oh, here's a bang, bang, tap, tap, tap in the shed. And he said, what's that? And Dad said, oh, um, this young fellow doing some carving. He said, oh, this i got to see. So he hopped over the fence, <laughs> went in and had a look, and he said, oh, uh, oh, I think you need a little bit of help, boy. So he said, um, meet me on Saturday morning, 7 o'clock, down, hop over the fence and meet me down at the kitchen in my house there, and I'll take you out to the buried village, bring you lunch. So I used to go out with him, and I learned a lot from him. Then he said to Dad one day, he said, you know, they're um, calling for um, applications for the Institute. Maybe you should get the young fellow to apply. The year was 1966. It was Clive's final year at high school. His father asked him what his career choice would be. At the time, he had two choices. The first was to head to university to study archaeology and anthropology, or head to carving school. So it was going to be either one or the other. And high school, I worked like anything in the last year at high school. Missed out on school certificate by a whisker. But um didn't matter much because I got a, a letter back from the board at that time saying I was accepted back into the school. Not without a few problems because when I applied for the school, they all looked at me and said, well, you know, you're a parker, you can't come in here. Dad said, well, he knows he's, he's iwi, he knows he's hapu, he knows the rest of it. And um, they said, oh, yeah, but he doesn't look Māori. He doesn't, he's not Māori, is he? So uh, Dad said, oh, OK. So we took a, a photograph in. It was a five-generation photograph. It's the oldest child in each generation, and they were all girls. 
And uh, so in the photo you have my aunt, who's my father's older sister, then you have my grandmother, great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother, great-great-great-grandmother. And she was full-blood, full-blooded Māori. She had the moko kawai. And Dad took this into the board and said, well, you know, he's the proof. Even John Taiapa said, well, he said it says Māori or part Māori. That's what you're, you say in your constitution. That's what it says. How many students were there in that very... So you were part of the very first intake? Yeah, first intake. There were seven of us started. I always thought it was on the 15th of January. It was my birthday, but it wasn't. It was the 16th. It was the day after. <laughs> oh, okay. And um, we started from 1967 to 69. Uh, three stayed on, three of us. It was myself, James Rickard, and Jimmy Fergus. Uh, we became known as the senior graduates. And so... In 2013, James Ricard, head tutor at the Carving School, took me on a tour of their workspace. So the shorter the hits, the faster the hits, they're cutting a circle. So each, each chisel and each timber has a different sound when you're carving. Yeah. So they all make different sounds. So um, for Kaida, it's got to do with, um, you know, your, your eyes your hands and your ears in unison. You kind of have to get them all working together. So when these guys go away on holiday and they stop for three weeks, everything just goes out of focus, if you like. And so it takes them about two weeks to get back in the, in the zone. But it's all about listening. So you can hear a sound across the room and know what, what yeah, style yeah, of... Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in some instances you can tell whether... The, the chisel is under stress or oh. something's under stress because they're bashing it too much. Uh, ponamu, you can feel it in the in the blade. What do you mean ponamu? Oh, ponamu adds We've got ponamu adds here. Yeah. What, what does ponamu add that the normal chisel doesn't? Um, well, it doesn't add anything. It just you can't make a mistake with ponamu. You can only take away so much at a time. And you can only use it for so long because it heats up. It's a water stone. So you can only have about... Um, use it for about a minute and you've got to chuck it in water to cool it down because you can start you can feel it coming through the handle it's kind of starts stretching it's like yeah. <laughs> when Hone Taiapa passed away on the 10th of May 1979 Tuti Tukoko who was at that time he was our, the assistant when we started to John he took over the role of the master carver and Tuti was with us for about 16 months and he left to go back to Tauranga to pursue... Um, he was very interested in contemporary Māori art. So. so that left the three senior graduates running the school. And then uh, James and Jimmy got word from their people. Uh, of course, uh, James' mother, Eva, Eva Rickard, called her, uh, James back to Raglan, over to that side. To, for some work there that they wanted done. So that left me behind. So um, they asked me if I'd take on the role as the master carver of the school. So I was board appointed in 1983 to that position. It's a position I still hold today. Hone Taiapa would be one of Clive's mentors. In fact, he would be instrumental in his carving career. John's brother, Penny, was also a well-known carver. And it seemed that the two of them together were a formidable force. 
it was always said that Pene was the mouthpiece and John was the hands. And when they were together, Pene would do the, the kōrero and John would do the demonstration. But Pene was also a great carver. He was a very good carver as well. Um, and they worked on houses all over the country. Um, it's said that Pene worked on at least 105. John probably worked on well in the late 60s probably 70 all up with John every single house was a masterpiece he was unique in that he could build a meeting house from the concrete foundation right to the last stick of carving tukutuku and call whaiwhai and everything in it he could build it he knew how to build it on his own virtually Um, he had the skill to do that Uh, as a teacher he was very good Um, nothing fazed him until in the later years he got a wee bit, um, I think his health packed up a little bit, and he got a wee bit grumpy, but, oh, well, that was to be expected. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but he had a, a manner and a way of teaching that he'd say, um, he had a, a, a good saying, there's always a way. If you do a boo-boo, there's always a way of fixing it. And he told me one time, he said, well, you know... Um, the person who, who doesn't make a mistake will never learn anything. The guy who makes all the mistakes will learn everything. Penny Taiapa was the first of the brothers to become a carver. It was in 1925. But John's talent with the adze and chisel caught up fast. Both brothers were Ngāti Pro and from a family of 14 kids, from Tamati Taiapa and Maraia Teiritawa. Here, in an archival recording, Pene talks about how he first dabbled with the art form. I didn't teach myself. I was only mucking around with it, playing with the, with the chisels and the wood and so on. But my whole background was built on Maori tradition and Maori history. My youth right up to that particular date, to make it exact, 1915, is a very important year to me. That's the time I interested myself in Maori culture. Not only carving, but also plaiting, weaving, and all of the other uh, aspects of Maori culture. Haka, action songs, and I was in the midst of it. You are considered the finest of Maori carvers. Have you always stuck closely in your carving to the Maori legends? Yes, that is the reason why uh, I am different from others. Uh, Mostly... Uh, uh, the carver becomes a copyist. And without the background of historical and traditional knowledge, you can't incorporate uh, the desire to produce something a little extra. Thereby, the distinction between my work and other carvers. What are some of the Maori gods that feature very much in your work? There are no gods featured in it, none whatsoever. Only ancestral uh, uh, images are projected onto carvings. No gods. They don't play a part in uh, Maori uh, carving. If they feature your ancestors, do they tell a story of some kind? Ah, that's the most outstanding thing about one's background. If you are steeped in history and so on, it comes very, very easily, and you, you can depend picked it or displayed on your work to the satisfaction of the whole community. And that's the essence of a good carver. This year, Clive was surprised by staff at Te Puea. They held a special gathering in his honour to acknowledge his work over the past 50 years. 
He talks about some of the large-scale projects he's been involved with over that time. We've helped a lot of iwi with houses and uh, also the teaching of students from each iwi. We've contributed immensely to teaching people to carve, for young men to carve, and taking that knowledge back to their own. Some have worked on houses in their own areas and uh, to keep the art alive because we were charged under an Act of Parliament which went through in 1963 to uh, educate, maintain and so on in the art of carving um, and uh, Maori arts and crafts and culture. So uh, I think we've, we've pretty well done that um, and we're still doing that, achieving that. A lot of big projects we've done with the Matatini stages. I know they had to, the carving school, they had to take one wall out to get all the timber in there to get it to, to carve it. And that was just the, the bottom, the pipe wire of the stage, the bottom part. So that's dismantled and... Yeah, it was all it... dismantled. So it comes apart and it can be assembled and disassembled. But that was one of the big projects that we worked on. We were doing several big projects at the moment. For uh, One was for Gallipoli, for the uh, 100 years centenary of the Battle of Gallipoli. But um, we haven't been able to get that over there because they've had a lot of raruraru over there at the moment and... Um, Probably when that all settles down, it'll probably go over. So we'll probably erect it here on site. At the moment, our guys are working on a a series of three panels which will go into our new carving school. And they're huge. They're really big pieces. So the future of our institute in Te looks really great. Clive is an avid reader and always carries a notebook around with him. In fact, it was the notes that he's accumulated over the past five decades that helped form the book Te Toki Mete Fal, the story of Māori carving tools that was published at the end of last year. It's part of my life, I guess. Um, the other track I would have probably have taken was either archaeology, ethnology or um, anthropology. So as... My career started at the Institute here. I realised that the study of those tools went with the carving because in early times they had to have used these tools to do carving, chisels and so on from stone and bone. So um, that led to the study of Māori tools and tool technology and that's what that book was about. So I started to to do that. And because I was good at art at school, I did all the drawings myself in the book. So there's 80-odd drawings in there, and I, I drew them myself at home. Uh, all I'd do, I'd draw them up, and then my wife would scan them, and uh, then we'd email them through, yeah. you know, easy. When did you start the book? When did that become a... Uh, it took about a year to yep. do, uh, quite easy, because I, I had answers and things at home. Some collection that I started... I started a collection up here years ago, and um, people would come in and donate a few of these stone edges to our collection. So we've, we've got quite a good collection here now. So I borrowed some from there and um, got drawings and so on for those. We learnt from John Taiapa how to use an edge, and it's essential when you're doing meeting house work. Um, that big work, the ads is the number one tool. You can use all sorts of modern equipment if you want to, but... Uh, the ads at the end of the day can remove a lot of wood very quickly. And explain uh, what, what an ads is, please? Uh, an ads is similar to an axe, but the 
the blade is set differently, whereas, um, how would you say, an axe would be um, vertical. Yep. The blade of the heads is horizontal. They were also used for um, gardening tools, uh, probably well over 70 to 80% of um, tools found have been found on garden sites. I know of different instances where farmers have ploughed up fields full of ads blades, largely because there were garden sites there. And a lot of our students want answers, you see, they're looking around for answers. So look in your grandfather's tool shed, you'll probably find one. Retirement is not in his sights anytime soon. He is still working full-time at the carving school. Clive says his work is all about knowledge sharing. He is working on a digital project that will do just that. At the end of the day, um, there's no use having this, all of this stuff stuck away in a box at home, not doing anything. It needs to be used and utilised for the future. Mm, Uh, And that's been the problem in the past. A lot of our old people passed away and took all the knowledge with them. Uh, I don't want that happening to me. I want to be able to have that knowledge still around for our people to use, particularly our young people can use it in, in the future. So we keep our knowledge and our arts, crafts and culture alive. And that's what's kept me here all these years is that. Keeping it, keeping it alive. John Tyapa said when we st- first came into the school, you've come in here to learn this art, to pass it on for future generations. And that's never left my brain. And that's why I'm still here. And that's what one of the things that keeps me here is that. The young guys that we have are a real, really nice crew. I always carry a little notebook in my pocket because you never know what you learn. You hear things, pull out the notebook and then it goes... There's little things, and even they come up with little gems now and again. I always say, I always worry about the things I don't know, not the things I know. So um, when they come up with these little gems, I write them in the little book. And I remember our um, esteemed um, historian, late Don Stafford. Our family had quite a bit to do with his family, and we knew him very well. And he said to me, I said, oh, one day with the little notebook, he said, yes, boy, snap, and he pulled his out. <laughs> he carried one too. <laughs> so there's uh, no ending to learning. Oh, you're learning all the time. That's the beauty of it. You know, the day you stop learning is the day you, well... Learning is the, part, the biggest part of it. That's what makes, makes life, is learning. You're learning all the time. Uh, I, I think the day I walked in the front door of this establishment was the day I started to learn and never stopped.